The war on talent did not really happen until now, the current year 2021, when millions of people left the labor force. Now, more than ever in American history, companies are having to figure out how to effectively retain their top performers. Enter Clear Company, the fastest growing talent management system, which focuses on the specific problem of talent engagement and retention. We chat with the company's CEO, Andre Lavoie, an entrepreneur and executive with deep experience building and scaling businesses. He shares his keen insights on the talent market, how Clear Company is different from other HR solutions, and the value of his capital partners, among other insights. We hope you enjoy the show. Andre, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a delight to chat with you today. One thing I'd like to start off with is your background, because I think there's something really interesting. Before you started Clear Company, you had a very successful career in corporate, but I would say it was not traditional in the sense that you were really an entrepreneur, it seems like, within these organizations, building businesses. I wanted to start there because I got to imagine there's a lot of people in our audience who maybe working for an organization now, probably have a bunch of ideas of businesses they could start. And maybe it's feasible to start within their existing corporation. So we'll love to hear about, I mean, you started pretty early with being an entrepreneur. Well, you know, RJ, it's, it's funny how one would look at my background and think that I was that. I would say that I, I'm not sure that that's accurate. And it's the reason why I left and started another company. <laughs> But maybe we'll find little nuggets as we go through. I started my career actually prior to my resume. My roommate and I in college thought it would be a really good idea to build a network that allowed college students to communicate with each other socially. Then we thought, well, that's a really terrible idea. And we shut it down after a year. That was back in 1998. And apparently it was a really good idea. But at the time, there were only 24% of the people on the internet. So we actually built one over the telephone and it was really, really expensive. So that was kind of the first introduction to there's an opportunity to build something that connects people in ways that are interesting and unique and important. And I put that aside for a number of years and joined a startup that was in its really, really early stages called CCBN. We were 36 on the Inc. 500 and and then sold the business to Thompson Financial. I then went on to run that business inside of Thompson Financial for a number of years, and then was appointed to run the investment management business right around the time that we acquired Reuters. So we went from a half a billion dollar business to roughly a billion dollar business. And I think it was something like 34 at the time, and they put me in charge of the whole thing, which was a huge mistake because I was really, really young and really inexperienced at running a global billion dollar business, but you have to take those opportunities when they come. But then I went into a period of a number of years where we were rationalizing two very similar businesses to discover synergies. And that was just really difficult. It was not a fun period of time because when you feel, imagine when you have as a company that has maybe three or four or five of every product and you're trying to rationalize those into one recurring revenue, great experience for the customer that does all of those things across multiple workflows, it's, it was hard. And I don't think that I left in 2013. I think they're still working on it as a business. So you can get these are really long arc projects that are not, I would say, not 
not where an entrepreneur like myself wanted to spend their time. So I left in 2013 and I was an, an investor in a company called HRM Direct at the time. I was the largest majority owner of the business. And so I jumped into that with a vision to kind of take that experience that I had or that desire, passion to build something that connected people, kind of going back to the 1998 experience around a social network and really focus it on that same concept inside of a company. But in this case, the social fabric of the company would be the goals attached to the mission and vision of the company. And so that's what we've done is Clear Company has spawned out of talent acquisition and moved into uh, talent retention and engagement to really create a full experience for a company that in today's age needs to acquire and retain their people. And we've said that for a number of years. Our mission and vision is to help companies achieve their mission by hiring, retaining, and engaging A players. But that war on talent, even though the book was published in 1997, has really not happened until 2021, right? And we're now in that age where there's a ravenous war on talent that's happening across the globe. I mean, clearly, you're trying to solve probably the biggest problem that all companies have, which is finding the right talent at the right time and then retaining that talent. There's many platform solutions out there in the HR space. What do you think it is about Clear Company that enables it to do, to acquire and retain talent and I guess monitor the engagement of the talent in kind of an effective way? Yeah, so when you look at the talent marketplace today, the 2021 and probably 22 and 23 and 24 talent marketplace, it's really a three-part problem. And I think most companies look at it as a one-part or possibly just two-part problem, right? So the first problem is that we have 4.3 million fewer people that are in the job market. And we haven't seen a decrease in labor participation like this since 1970. So we've improved from World War II to 1970, but we're stuck in 1970 in terms of labor participation. Right? So that is creating a pinch point for the, not just for companies, but potentially for the entire economy. Because if you can't hire the people to grow your business, then you're not going to grow. So that's part one. Part two is that there's more competition for that employee that's not applying or that applicant that's not becoming a candidate. And that's increased by 30%, right? So we have 30% more requisitions on the market than we've ever had. And so if you think about this as a series of kind of charts like equity and debt, you would expect these things to kind of move in a correlated way. What we're seeing instead is we're seeing a massive spread. And so you have more and more companies and more and more requisitions chasing fewer and fewer applicants. So that's part one and two. And we solve those problems like other applicant tracking systems do. But we also reach into the company and we begin to understand the dynamic of, we're not just throwing candidates or applicants over a fence and hoping that they stick, but we're understanding the dynamic of what makes a great employee. And, and so we're trying to solve that third part of the stool, which is retention. And this is the part that no other company, I think, tries to solve both at the same time to give you a full talent spectrum, which is if you had 15% turnover in your employees in 2020, you likely have something like 40% today because of YOLO, because of the great resignation. And we're not sure when those are going to kind of rebalance. 
And so given all of that dynamic, the HR and recruiting teams today have to work between 3.1 and 3.7 times harder or faster than they had to a year ago to achieve either A, the same result, or try to improve or grow their company headcount. And so our platform, again, solves the three-part problem, not one or two of those parts, and does it in a way that you can see the whole thing. Got it. You mentioned something interesting, YOLO, and which brings me to the gig economy. And I've been hearing a certain demographic now with YOLO in the background says, well, I just want to control my own time. I don't want to work for the man. I'm just going to do gigs. And there's other platforms out there that help enable these jobs. I'm not sure if this is a, I'm off on a, on a tangent, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts around some of the labor force kind of finding jobs in more of a freelance way. Do you see that as a trend, as a major trend or a minor trend or just kind of not even worth really thinking about from your business's standpoint? Yeah, a lot of people ask me the question, and I think what you're leading to is, why is the labor market so tight? And where are all the people, <laughs> right? And I get asked that question a lot. And I don't, it almost to me doesn't matter why it happens. We just know that it's happening. And could the gig economy contribute to that? I think that's a great insight. I think possibly that has a lot to do with it. People just deciding that they're going to work flexible jobs. I think you know, we know what we know, right, is that roughly two and a half million women have left the labor force because of the cost arbitrage that you know, is no longer there for them to get childcare, right? So we know about that. We know about people that are still afraid to go into work because of COVID. Those are the known knowns. It's a very complex problem, but what we look at and the way we kind of size up the market and the opportunity and the acceleration that it's causing our business and our growth rate is that we're watching those spreads. And right now, for whatever reason, those spreads are not getting better. They're getting more pronounced. And so whatever's happening, it's not improving. It's actually getting more and more competitive and more challenging to find and retain people than it has ever been. Okay, so how do you then measure engagement of your employee base? And it sounds like the first step to that is figuring out which of your employees you actually care about to engage and then measuring their engagement. Yeah, so I think that first, it's touched on a really important point, which is how can you tell which employees you care about? We care about all of our employees. And at the same time, there are some that outperform others, right? And it's really interesting to look at performance as a unit of measure against or a way of segmenting a survey, right? So how do you measure? You measure by, by actually running an employee survey. The problem with performance surveys today is they can benchmark you against other companies, but they can't tell you which of the people that are responding to those questions are actually performers or not, right? And so it's actually, and I love that you phrased that question that way, it's the union of performance and surveying that gives us the best insight into what we should do to retain people. Because you could look at a survey absent of performance and say, everybody wants chocolate bars, right? And everybody wants banana splits. And should we fund chocolate bars or banana splits? What's going to keep people? But if the survey told you that all of your top performers want 
chocolate bars and all of your bottom performers want banana splits, then you would know exactly what to do, right? And so running a, an employee engagement survey without having the full picture of who's answering it in an anonymous way, right? Keeping anonymity, but giving your company insights to actually make better decisions to retain the people you want to, that's the ticket. Curious how you first embarked into the sales process. Like, did you find certain sectors to be more maybe primed for a solution like yours? How did you approach kind of figuring out who your target market would be and how you would kind of expand? It's a great question. You know, you go through phases, as many companies do, to try to identify your ideal customer profile. And and ours has, and naturally, as you're trying to kind of grow your ARR, you're also trying to possibly go up market, right? Because it might cost the same amount of money to service a 2,000-person company than a 50-person company. And so we, over time, have worked on features and functionality that bring us up market. And so the ideal customer profile today is very different than the one in 2013. We probably were servicing a sub-100 employee company then. We're we're more likely to service a 500 to 5,000 employee company today. And that has been a function of just addressing the needs of larger and larger companies. In terms of industries, we are a platform that allows the industry to be its own industry within a multi-tenancy SaaS platform. So if you look at the market today, you'll have companies that have gone with the adage, go small to get big, right? And so they've picked a single industry and dominated the industry. Healthcare source is a good example, right? They're a talent management platform for healthcare. I think the problem with that, it's the SAM, right? And the growth rate achievable in a single industry vertical. And ironically, most of the companies that we compete with have chosen both a set of capabilities and sometimes a very narrow set, maybe just applicant tracking, and an industry, which creates a very, you could grow extremely fast in there, but at some point you're going to own the whole market and you're going to grow as fast as the market. And what we've done is we thought very early on about how do we become a better version of every industry? What we did is we centralized all of our design around the role. So if you think about what's really different between hire for and you're trying to retain, and if you have a role-centric view of that, it's the lattice work to build up the entire experience around that customer. Yeah, maybe just to close out the thought around how you're expanding the business and the segments of the market that you're targeting. I think that would be great. Yeah, so I think it, the bottom line is that we built a platform that can service any industry that is struggling with hiring, retaining, and engaging top people. And we do that because of the role-centric architecture of the platform that allows you to be a great solution for tech, a great solution for hospitality, a great solution for healthcare. Got it. And then a couple questions I typically like to ask guests are about their kind of experience building businesses. Can you tell us about how it's been so far? You've probably had some challenges along the way. You've also been successful at bringing in capital. So I would like to hit on those two parts. Like, Tell us a little bit about kind of your journey as an entrepreneur. Being an entrepreneur is hard, right? It's hard. At the same time, when people say, well, what do you need to do to build a great company? We say, in the SaaS business, it's very easy. You just have to acquire more customers and keep them for a really long time. And they say, well, how do you do that? And I say, well, that part's really hard. <laughs> and what I say what's different about my journey than probably others is that I've been a lot less 
interested in being kind of the flashy big business that does the really, really enormous rounds of funding. I've watched both myself in the prior company that we sold to Thomson Reuters, as well as so many of my colleagues get trapped in this idea that if they go and raise the biggest round, that somehow it's going to make them successful. And I've watched that behavior make a lot of other people really wealthy, but not always the employees or the founders of the business. And so this time around, we focused the business in such a way that it was more capital efficient. And we focused on the efficiency metrics of the business really, really intensely so that we would be very careful about the capital that we spent so we could basically own our own destiny. And we actually did our first capital raise outside of debt in 2018. We jumped all the way from, from no raise to a private equity round, which is pretty unusual. And we'll likely do our second private equity, large private equity round, probably in another year and a half. One of the things we always hit on is your experience with investors. We have a lot of investors that listen in on these episodes. We'd love to hear how kind of your current investors have helped the business and helped you kind of beyond providing financial capital. Yeah, I would say that they bring a lot of discipline around, because you think you know a lot when you come in and you say, well, I've been in the SaaS business for 20 years. I, I know how to run a SaaS business. But you have some blind spots. And I would say that, that one of my bigger blind spots over the last 18 months that the private equity firms have helped me kind of fill in has been around the importance of gross churn over net revenue retention. I always thought, got 107 points of net revenue retention, I've got a great business. And over and over again, you keep hearing the drumbeat of you have to improve underlying gross retention, even if your NRR is good, right? And then again, coming back down to and kind of coming to grips with the fact that your private equity firm wants you to get into certain ratios, LTV to CAC, those types of ratios that are important. They're not just important because the next private equity firm wants to see those, but they're also important for kind of the long-term viability of a business that can kind of grow off of its own capital that it creates from its cash flows. And I think those have been the learnings that I've taken for the past two years from my private equity firm and really worked to apply. But I have a great team. They've pushed us in a direction, but then they kind of let us find the path that's appropriate for our business. And I've appreciated the relationship and the push that they've done because it ultimately opens your eyes to growing a better business. Maybe one last question. If you could share with us your thoughts on who you think the best leader or CEO is of the modern era, one that you kind of would love to emulate and you think the world of. Well, it's unfair because he's also my board member, but I really have a huge amount of admiration for Larry Begley. He's a CFO leader. He somehow finds himself knee-deep in the very, very best companies that end up always becoming unicorns. And I don't know how he does it, but he's been doing it for so long. But he's also the most generous person with his time, with his resources, with his board memberships, with his charity giving. I mean, he's just a real, I think, an icon. He started Dot 406 Ventures which you know, is an early stage seed capital firm in Boston, one of the most respected out there, and just continues to be a great person and mentor. Excellent. Well, that's a, a good note to end on. Andre, I want to thank you again for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thanks, RJ. I appreciate the time. 